This is the Victory Away from the Venue podcast, showing a different side of the athletes you know and love, or maybe don't know and love, and how what happens far removed from the bright lights and the TV cameras can provide a different way to look at accomplishment. And now here are your hosts, two friends dating back to college and sports junkies their entire lives, Matt Swinney and Zach Wells. How's it going, everybody? Welcome inside episode number seven of the Victory Away from the Venue podcast. We've got a great show for you today. Really, really excited about the conversation coming up with Greg Swindell, a left-handed pitcher in Major League Baseball, played nearly two decades on the mound, first as a starter, then as a reliever. Just a really interesting story. Greg Swindell, his wife, Sarah, they were married, then got divorced, got remarried, kind of a finding one another, forgiving one another, reconciling. And they have a wonderful family. They have a son named Dawson with advanced autism. And he's just a tremendous joy to them, brings a lot of light to everybody's life that, that knows the Swindells. So we'll have Greg and Sarah on today to talk about life in the major leagues and just some other things too related to their adventure in Austin, Matt, where I check in with you. Matt Swinney, the co-host. Matt, what's up, man? What's up? How you doing, bud? I don't want to spoil anything, but I really, really like the story that Greg's going to tell us about being in the dugout at Yankee Stadium with the Arizona Diamondbacks. It was his second to last season with the Snakes and in Major League Baseball, watching George W. Bush, days after 9-11, come out to the mound in a bulletproof vest and throw a perfect strike down the middle to kind of announce to the world that America's coming back sports is coming back we're going to heal and we're going to be stronger than ever it's it's pretty chilling it'll give you some goosebumps absolutely i'm glad he and sarah talked about and and we get to hear from sarah his wife about being in the stands that night which i think is a super unique um i've gotten to know greg and sarah a little bit along the way and both of them have such interesting stories and and we really wanted to have them both on at the same time as guests because we hear a lot from players um we don't always hear a lot from um, player spouses and what that life is like, uh, what it's like to be the wife of a, um, you know, Greg, Greg in a lot of his career, I can't remember exactly how many teams he played for, but it was like seven or eight. So, you know, of kind of bouncing around and being a journeyman and what does that look like? And, you know, going from a starter to a reliever, winning a world series late in his career, all those things. And I, and I love to hear it too, through, through Sarah's eyes. I think, it, I think everyone will really, really enjoy this conversation. It was one of my favorite ones we've had. Speaking of World Series and that chase for the trophy that everybody wants at the end of October, early November, whatever the calendar suggests, what a race, Matt, we are poised to watch. Major League Baseball postseason, we're down to the final handful of games. And I tell you what, I was a little skeptical at the beginning when Major League Baseball and the Players Union agreed to this expanded format. You know, the, the purest to me is like, is it really going to be interesting? Everybody gets a cookie. Everybody gets a trophy. More than half the teams make it when you've got, what, eight in each league that are going to go to the postseason. But I am just – I'm so excited. I watch every night. I keep track of the scores every night because you're going to have almost like an NCAA tournament format now where you have your really, really good teams like the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Tampa Bay Rays. But you've got some teams that have really underachieved, I think, like the Cincinnati Reds in my hometown of Cincinnati – but also teams that I think have really surprised people like the San Francisco Giants that are 
in position there to maybe knock off a number one seed and be the hot team, maybe the eight or nine seed equivalent in the NCAA tournament to, to really prevail in that David versus Goliath matchup. Yeah, we're, we're recording on uh, Tuesday on the last week, week of the season. And right now in the National League, the Marlins sit at the fifth seed. God bless I mean, them. Who, who saw that coming? Did you see that coming? I did not. Quick, and name, really quick, name, three, quick, quick name three Marlins. Is Urania on the Marlins? <laughs> That's my point. Yes, he is. Uh, Jordan Yamamoto, I can go with. Uh, I tell you oh, what Star, Starling Marte, and I only know that because he got traded at the trade deadline. <laughs> what an unbelievable dynamic you have in baseball right now because you yeah. have teams like the Marlins, like the Tampa Bay Rays, like the Oakland Athletics. There's not a lot of sex appeal there. What there is – is a well-run organization from top to bottom. And especially in, in Tampa and Oakland, they can't afford to pay these guys when they get to their big contract, right? So you have Matt Chapman at third base. What a ball player he is. So you you groom Matt, you develop Matt. Matt's a, a stud for you for a couple of years. Then Matt leaves in free agency and, and he's got to go on his way and, and make a lot of money somewhere else. So you you have those kinds of players. And then you have players like, your main man, I'm not bringing this up to, to rub salt in the wounds, like Mike Fires, who has been a cast-off, who is on his umpteenth team, not umpteenth, but he's played for several teams. He's at that tail end of his career where he really wants to prove that he's still got some gas in the tank, and I'm not ready to retire yet, and I can still be a productive player. When you have that dynamic, young kids, veterans still with a little bit of a chip, and you've got a really smart manager like Bob Melvin, like Don Mattingly, like Kevin Cash. I think a lot of great things can happen in baseball that we're going to see. Well, and I think, I think one thing we're seeing this year, and I think it's interesting, is we didn't really know what a short season would do, right? Like, we, we had some guesses, but I don't think – I think the part that we didn't see is that there's just not enough time for legitimate separation. Right. And so injuries play a big factor. Right. So if you if you lose a pitcher um, and he misses, you know, two starts, I mean, that's like I mean, he may only make 10 starts all season. And so the point is, is that those teams that are there is just not that much difference between the best team in baseball and the worst team in baseball, right? It's kind of like professional golfers, right? There, there's just not a ton of separation from A to Z. And in a short season, I think you really get to notice that. And I think what happens is, is any team can get hot at any time. And a six game winning streak is the equivalent of a, of a, of a like 15 game winning streak in the, in a, in a normal length season. And so, and same thing with a six game losing streak, right? So you saw that with the Yankees, right? Where the Yankees just went on just this, just, I mean, injury riddled, you know, they were a mess for a long time. And then all of a sudden rattle off six or seven straight and they go from not even in a playoff position into like the, you know, I guess, well, I guess because of the way the seating works, but they still have like the third best record in America and the American league now all of a sudden. And so I just think that it makes for an interesting in a short season, I, you know, the purist in me doesn't love this short season. It is what it is. Beats not having any baseball at all, but I do funny enough think that, you are going to see probably the 16 best teams or close to it in those 16 spots. Um, the part I'm a little, and the part that maybe where, where you're coming from of the, when I kind of, you know, how do we feel about eight teams from each league making it? 
kind of a thing. The original thought that I had in my head was, oh man, I mean, it, is it, then there's not a whole lot of benefit in being like the one seed because you're going to have to play a three game series against an eight seed. And if they get hot, anybody, I mean, we know how baseball goes. Anybody can lose a best of three series, but at the same time, you're asking a team to win two out of three. Right. Right. And so Matt, just for our listeners, can I jump in real quick? So just yeah. for our listeners, maybe our, our baseball fans who aren't like diehards. So basically with the expanded playoffs this year, you're going to have, there are three divisions in each league. Okay. You're going to have two representatives from each division for six playoff teams. Then you're going to have two wild cards from the American and the national league to give you eight teams each 16 teams total. Yeah. And, and, and here is one thing that I do like that they did is that they did prioritize winning your division, right? So records kind of go out the window. So one, two, and three, say in the American league are going to be the East central and West, right? Based on those records. And then the second place teams become four five and six, regardless of record. Now they're ranked against each other and then seven and eight are the two wildcard teams. And I do think that's fair. I like that. It at least gives some kind of emphasis on winning the division. And then really the fourth place team gets, you know, home field advantage, whatever that means with no crowds. But I'll tell you, my Astros have seen that. I mean, we have just been horrid on the road and great at home and who knows why, um, especially when there's no, no fans and stands. But I do like that there's at least that. And I'll tell you, now that we're here, um, again, I'm like you. I didn't love the love, love it when it first came out. But now that we're here, I hope we keep it. I just think that some of the things that did, like we saw it, right? Your Reds, or you are, didn't sell at the deadline. I think you probably wanted them to sell at the deadline, thought that they should Absolutely have. Absolutely but, but, but now they're going to sneak, poss- probably sneak into a playoff spot. And I'll tell you, if they come in in the eight seed, they're going to go against the Dodgers. And all of a sudden, you're going to have a Castillo, Bauer, and Sonny Gray, one, two, three, against whoever the Dodgers decide their one, two, three are. And I'll tell you, it wouldn't shock me, right? If, if, the, if the Reds bats ever wake up, which they haven't done all season, but if they happen to wake up for that three-game series, you could see the Reds knocking off the Dodgers. It's, it, it would not be that surprising. I'm sorry. So here's where I think there is some fool's gold involved. If you're a major league baseball executive. The Reds didn't spend all this money, and it's not just the Reds. The Reds did not spend all of this money in the offseason. I mean, Bob Castellini and the ownership group, they opened up the checkbook to bring in some studs, okay? They went to Milwaukee and got Mike Moustakis for $64 million. They went on the free agent market and got Nick Castellanos, who can opt out after this year. He could be a two-year player here. And you went to Japan on the foreign market and got Shogo Akiyama, for 21 he's been a little bit of a swim better lately but he ended up being basically a platoon outfielder hitting only right-handed pitching as a left-handed batter okay the reds did not spend all of that money to 100 and i think that there can be some fool's gold some some illusions some smoke and mirrors thinking oh we've really arrived we're playing in the postseason after 55 games, which gives you a real good idea of where you are, they're 28 and 27 and on the tail end of that group that's going to possibly make it. Do I think they're going to make it? Sure. But you can make it conceivably as a fourth place team in your own division. And 
I think they should have sold at the deadline. Honestly, you might be like, Zach, you're crazy because they're going to be playing postseason baseball. Yeah, they might. They're also hitting 500, playing 500. And Trevor Bauer is going to win the Cy Young potentially. And he is going to command a haul and would have commanded a haul uh, if you're only, you know, potentially going to bow out in the first round of the LA Dodgers. But, but I think one thing that, that no one is really talking about, at least in the national media that I've seen, I think one thing that makes this season so interesting is that there's no cross-divisional play, right? So the just staying on the Reds, right? So the, the Reds are in the NL Central, and so they, they play a lot of games against the NL Central, and then they play some games against the AL Central. And then same thing for the East and then the West. And so the difference is, and I think one thing that 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 has been interesting to me is that if you really look at the two centrals, which is funny, those have generally been, been fairly weak divisions um, across baseball over the last decade or so, right? The NL Central and the AL Central have kind of been sort of laughing stock. But to be honest, the AL Central, the White Sox may be the best team in the American League. The Indians have, I mean, way outkicked their coverage. That's a very, very good baseball team. Um, you, and then you've got so, – so those two on the American League side. And then kind of some upstarts, like the Tigers haven't been nearly as bad as everybody thought they were going to be. And then in the, in the NL Central, I mean, outside of Pittsburgh, the other four teams in that division are all solid. And so when you really look at the Reds, to me, part of the problem is, is – and I think what we're going to see once we get to playoff baseball is, is – was the central that much better? And that's why they're kind of a 500 teams, right? Right. Was everyone just between the centrals, just beating up each other, you know, which is kind of what happens in, let's say the PAC 12, right? Like no one from the PAC 12 in football can ever get out of the, can ever can get, get into the playoff because they're so evenly matched, right? There's no one huge standout team. There's also not a doormat with the exception of kind of the very top and very bottom, but generally everybody's kind of packed together. And I, and I kind of wonder if the two centrals are that way, and when you've been beating each other up all year, does that put you in a better position than say someone like the Dodgers who have been able to put their, you know, basically on cruise control, because let's be honest, the AL West has been outside of the A's has been very mediocre at best. And that includes my Astros. They, I mean, that's a 500 team against bad baseball teams. And really, the NL West really hasn't been all that good either. Wait a minute. You don't think the Texas Rangers are a competitive baseball team? Oh, Jesus. It's horrid. Gosh, the, the only news they made this year was crying and whining about Fernando Tatis Jr. hitting a grand slam on a 3-0 count. Come on now. Make a better pitch. Get him out. Yeah. Anyone no hit kidding. a grand slam. No kidding. So we'll definitely stay tuned for baseball playoffs coming up in the next week. It's going to be fascinating. I also like the bubble concept where you're going to all go to one city and hopefully you can take yeah. the spread of this virus. So, Matt, so before you, see before you hang on, hang on, before you move on, I want your picks before the playoffs start. Who Who's coming out of the National League? Who's coming out of the American League? And then who's your World Series winner? Coming out of the National League will be the Los Angeles Dodgers. Coming out of the American League will be the Texas Rangers. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Coming out of the American League will be the New York Yankees. They're hot. And they're healthy. And the World Series winner in a replay of the World Series from the late 1970s, Reggie Jackson hitting all those home runs, is going to be, I think, the L.A. Dodgers get over the hump for the first time since 88. 
And will and they will we, gosh, if you're looking for a team to do, my goodness. What about you? So before I give you my picks, so let's say the Dodgers win. Are you gonna look or maybe two questions. Are you and then what do you think the national media will do? with this being a short season and how do you feel about that for the Dodgers finally getting over that hump? I tell you what, I thought David Bell, the manager of the Reds made the best point and gave the greatest possible answer. He said, if this is an asterisk season, asterisk, easy for me to say asterisk. If this is an asterisk season and the asterisk is overcame obstacles, challenges, protocols that have never been in place before in the history of Major League Baseball in a 60-game sprint to the trophy, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, if I, they win, if they win, if they win, I hand it to them, and, you know, they made a great trade. I still have no idea how Major League Baseball signed off on Mookie Betts and David Price going to the L.A. Dodgers for basically Alex Verdugo. Alex is a great player, really solid player, but I still have no idea how that happened. That's another story for another day. I, just, I, I believe the L.A. Dodgers are due. Yeah, yeah, I, I won't view it any with any, with any neg- negativity either. I, I agree. I think that and, – and frankly, I mean, 60 games, 162 games, 120 games. I mean, what do you have to play? I mean, the reality is, is that the Dodgers, in my mind, really are the best team in baseball this season. I don't think there's really any question about that. Um, that said, just to be contarian, I really love the Padres. I really do. And they've seen oh, the Dodgers and, and, I've, and they've seen the Dodgers a lot this year. And I think that they will stare them down if they get to play against each other. So I, I, I like the Padres coming out of the Nas- National League. Um, the American League, I actually like the Rays. I think that that's a, a complete team. Again, if they play, if they play the Yankees somewhere along the way, I think they're not going to be scared. They're going to, they're going to be able to stare them down easily as well. Um, the team, the dark horse team, and they're not even really much of a dark horse, but very similar to the Padres. I'd love to see the White Sox make a run at this thing. They're definitely early. Um, I think, I think next year, the Padres and White Sox, I mean, you're talking about potential dynasties if those, um, if the powers that be can keep them together. And then I would throw the Blue Jays into that too. Not, not for this season, but I would throw them into that same category. The young talent in those three, on those three teams is, is really, really uh, fun to watch. And anybody who's not watching them because they're not the Blue Bloods, I, I, hope, I hope starts tuning in. So I'll say, I'll say Padres and Rays. Um, and I like the Rays to get over the hump. Uh, for the awesome. first time, for the first time ever, I, I just I, I love that team. I think Kevin Cash is a great manager, and I just think they're they are built for the playoffs, especially in a year like this year. Just enough bat and a lot of really good arms. What's really interesting is you're going to have teams in the postseason for the first time in a long time with the Padres, first time since 2006, Chicago White Sox for the first time since 2008. Matt, did you see the injuries in the NFL this past Sunday? I mean. Uh, you want to talk about a Mount Rushmore of really, really good players that are, that are going to be spending a lot of time in the training room trying to get back on the field for 2021. It's incredible. Saquon Barkley, torn ACL. Joey Bosa, torn ACL. Von Miller, shredded ankle tendon. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And I think it gets me back to my point. And I'm not going to sit here and, and pound my chest like, oh, told you so. 
I'm not doing that at all. I think the danger is be really, really careful what you ask for because the players have been asking for minimized preseason, cut down the exhibition games. I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to have ever gone to medical school or have any kind of specialty in orthopedics, but it begs the question at least when you're going from zero to 60 miles an hour with the, without the benefit of a snap count, or I'm only playing 10 snaps today. I'm only playing 20 snaps on defense. I don't think the body's ready for that, especially in a game as fast and physical as the NFL. Yeah. Just for clarification purposes, Zach said Joey Bosa, he meant Nick Bosa, but we'll give him credit. I do mean Bosa of the yeah. San Francisco 49ers. I hope Joey's ACL is still intact. Yeah, but Joey was playing through injuries too. He has that triceps uh, injury. Um, and yeah, I mean, here, here's the thing, right? We, we saw it. We almost got a preview of this with baseball, right? I mean, we saw especially pitchers, right? We saw Verlander go down in week one. We saw Corey Kluber go down in week one. We saw several others. We've seen pitchers kind of just falling apart and, and position players too in baseball. And so, and baseball clearly doesn't have the amount of impact and everything else that comes with on a, on a body like football does. And I, again, I'm with you. I hate to say, I told you so, but this is the problem, right? And, and you're right. Players have begged for less preseason. Well, they got it this year. And I think this is the payment for that and not just less preseason. There was no preseason. Right. Exactly. And, and not just less preseason from a, from a number of games standpoint, but like basically no preseason, right? I, I don't remember the exact date that they reported um, to camp, but their, but their training camp was shorter than a normal training camp and didn't have any of the preseason games. You know, normally football preseason what is what, four or five preseason games plus training camp before that. So you're talking about, you know, six weeks of, of camp coming into a season. And this year was like, two weeks or something like that. And we know just the athletes that we know, athletes are creatures of habit, right? And they really, um, most baseball players are this way. Most football players are this way, right? They do the same thing every single day. You know, on Mondays, this is what I do on, in, in, in the NFL, right? On Mondays, this is what I do. On Tuesdays, this is what I do. On Wednesdays, this is what I do. And, you know, I start training for, you know, the next season starting at this time in order to lead into this time, right? They literally just back out a calendar, right? And when that's not available to them, I, one, that creature of habit can't come out. And two, so they're they're kind of thrown off anyway. And then two, they get out there into the most violent game there is and with impact and getting hit and their body just isn't ready for it and it's not used to it. And you know, so I, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I fear that, you know, this is just week two that we're through. And I fear over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see very similar injuries. And you're going to have a lot of superstars that are missing entire seasons or half seasons or even a game or two here and there, which in the NFL and a short, I mean, it's already kind of a short season, right? It's only whatever, 16 games, 17 weeks. Um, you know, I just, I worry that, that, that that's where we're going to be all season, that we're going to just constantly be bumping up against this. I truly think that there's going to be a very watered down NFL product here in about six to eight weeks, because if I'm an NFL executive and it's week nine, I've already had my buy a chance to get healthy and I'm staring at two and six. Do I want to run out the hundred million dollar quarterback in 
throwaway games in pride and paycheck games? I'm not so sure I do. And the NFL playoffs and the push to the Lombardi trophy is really a game of attrition. Anyway, it's whoever is the least decimated by injuries usually wins. I think this year it's going to be just magnified five, six fold in terms of whoever holds up the trophy. And you want to talk about an asterisk? There's no asterisk at all. I mean, they're playing their full schedule in front of no fans and to be able to withstand just the beating on the body with no lead up really is going to be pretty magnificent. Yeah. And yeah, I think you're right. I think all of a sudden you're going to have a lot of uh, big name quarterbacks on bad teams that um, ha- have a, Oh, that the, their back's a little tweaked this week or whatever, right? They're never going to say that they're just sitting them, but that's what's going to happen, right? You're going to see a lot of kind of these minor injury kind of thrown out there. You know, his hammy is a little tight, so we're just going to keep him out this week and see how it looks over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to put him under evaluation. The next thing you know, you don't see him for the rest of the season, which kind of which kind of leads you to, you know, especially some of these rookie quarterbacks, right? Like Joe Burrow who's actually played really well. I'm, I'm actually very, very impressed by him in these first two weeks, but, you know, it kind of, kind of does stand to reason, you know, how long are the Bengals going to throw him out there? Um, I can't imagine it was in the game plan for him to throw the ball 61 times last week against the Browns. And by the way, if that is your game plan, then you're in kind of some deep trouble probably. That is 61, say Senta Iuno times, yeah. 61 times. You don't yeah. win throwing the ball 61 times. No, and but I mean, you got to figure with the Bengals. I mean, not only that, Matt, but you have him. Not only that, Matt, but you have him. The transition from college football to the NFL is a huge task in a normal year because keep in mind, Joe Burrow, let's say he plays all 16 games, that will be more than he ever played at Ohio State and LSU. And if you're asking him to throw 61 times, take this number of snaps, the offensive line is terrible. Take that kind of beating. It's and he just signed for a hundred million dollars. So right, right. So I, I mean, between you and me, I hope Tua never sees the field this year. <laughs> I mean, because because I, I really think he could be a special player in Miami. And just what's the point? I mean, just let him let him be a backup. Let him learn a system. And you know, and I hope that we don't see somebody like a Burrow, some one of these young kids who I think really could be the future, one of the future faces of the NFL. I'm really impressed by him. You know, I'd, I'd hate to see just because of these bizarre circumstances you know, these same kinds of things that we're seeing happen, right? I mean, the 49ers, I mean, losing Jimmy Garoppolo. Look, Jimmy Garoppolo is not is not the greatest quarterback in the league, but he is solid, and that's a very good football team. But now that's going to be a an average football team at best. Who knows how long Garoppolo is going to be out, right? And, and even those, we like to talk about the giant names, but the reality is, is there's a big drop-off from – QB one and QB two, right? And 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 especially in the NFL, you're going to see good teams, you know, hit the skids very very quickly if they're not careful. Side note: Before we get to Greg and Sarah Swindell, Cam Newton, a lot of heart, big fan, has battled back. Cam Newton, nobody wanted him. He was a free agent. He was pretty much available to any bidder. Really, signed for one million dollars to go to New England, revive his career after injuries. And I'll tell you what, it's, it's incredible watching. Yeah. And I think put together a game plan that strengths of players minimizes of defenses that when you look at talent, I mean, New England Patriots, Seattle Seahawks, I think you can make a very compelling case. Seattle's the more talented team on paper. The Patriots were one play away from winning Yeah, in Seattle. 
Yeah. And, and, and I think one thing I do want to say that, you know, and, and Cam's a little bit different scenario, but the, the idea of, we talked about Trevor Bauer earlier to kind of put a bow on this. You know, one of the things about Bauer, which, which people probably don't know uh, if, you're, if you're just a casual baseball fan, is he keeps signing one-year deals. And he has said that he will never sign more than a one-year deal for the rest of his career. We'll see if that actually is true because for him, he knows he can make more money on an annual basis if he just keeps signing one-year deals and he keeps betting on himself. And I feel like Cam did a little bit of that too. He just bet on himself. He trusts himself. He, 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 I'm, he, he may have had some other offers from some other teams, but if you're Cam for a million bucks to go play under Bill Belichick, you know, Hall of Fame coach, you know, one of the greatest coaches to ever live, who cares about the million bucks, right? This is your chance to go prove yourself as a team guy, as a, as a team first guy, right? Cam has gotten a lot of that kind of knock in the past of being a me first kind of guy. And, and I just don't, at his age now, I just don't think that's who he is anymore. He may have been at one time in his career, but he's not anymore. And I just love seeing these athletes just in general bet on themselves right of going out and saying hey i i know i've still got it i know i still have whatever that it is and and i i I, you just see them have great seasons when they do it right because they they find whatever that next gear is and i think you're going to see that with cam and i think new england's going to surprise some people um i think everyone had written them off post brady as being you know, done. That was the end of the era. And one, I don't think that's how Bill Belichick is built. I don't, I don't think he, I don't think he stands for losing. And so he will figure out a way to put the pieces together in this weird puzzle, because that's what he always did with Brady, right? It's just that Brady became this guy that nobody ever expected him to be, but Brady never had Hall of Fame talent around him. He made guys look like Hall of Famers. That's the difference. And I think Cam has that same opportunity if he's given it and good for good for Belichick for for willing to take the bet on it the name Swindell is synonymous of course with baseball Greg Swindell was a 17-year left-handed pitcher first as a starter then later in his career as a reliever his wife Sarah is an accomplished author actress and model we want to welcome in Greg and Sarah Swindell it is awesome to have you both on the podcast today how are you we are great how are you guys good to be here we have, yours is just such an incredible story. And I guess the tough part when you're dealing with such interesting people that have had so many life experiences is where do you start? So when you're writing the Swindell story, where's a good starting point for us? The Post Oak Ranch uh, country <laughs> bar. <laughs> yeah, we, we had met, I just got back from Cincinnati, a season in Cincinnati in 1992. And um, knew her brothers and Steve and Jeff, and we were out one night, and then we we caught eyes, and it was kind of love at first sight. Not kind of, it was, and um, really dated for about six weeks, and and got married. <laughs> yes, I remember on our wedding night, I asked Greg, I'm like, so tell me your mom's name again, and where are you from? <laughs> so yeah, but. Yeah. And That's now, fantastic. So you all met in, did you all meet in Houston? Yes. So you had played in Cincinnati and then went home to Houston or, or to your off season place, yeah. Greg, and then you and, and Sarah met? I, I was in the middle of a divorce <laughs> and went back to Houston, had my own place near the downtown, uh, the gallery area and 
like I said, knew her brothers and knew a bunch of guys from college. So we kind of, it was kind of a, a big group that we hung out with and um, eventually got to meet the Baker's younger sister, which is Sarah. And um, we hit it off pretty good. Yep. You just signed with Astro. He was kind of the cool guy in town for sure. So. <laughs> so Sarah, did you know he was a ball player at first or no? At first, well, my brothers told me they're like, this guy, he wants to, he wants to meet you, so don't screw this up because he's kind of a big deal. I'm like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> I'd actually set him up with my friend because I was kind of casually dating someone at the time, and the four of us went out with actually other people the first date, so yeah. we kind of swapped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that works. Yeah, that works. And and yeah. that was the beginning of that was the beginning of your stint in Houston with the Astros. So you were coming off of that sort of big free agent signing, right? And what what was that like? What was that kind of I guess pressure, right? I mean, at that point, right? If I have it right, right, you you would just sign the big contract, and you know, what did that feel like to sort of have to live up to that, Greg? I, I guess I mean I talk about it with with former players and guys that did sign contracts that you sign the contract from what you prior did. Right. So you've made your money from what you've done before. And, um, but pressure was coming back home, uh, yeah. pitching in Houston where I grew up and went to high school and in front of friends and family, that was um, probably not the worst part of it, but kind of um, uh, distractions because people are always wanting things and wanting tickets and uh, you know you have three brothers two three two sisters and a brother and they're all just wanting to, to come to ball games with their families and, and things which some people look at it as well what kind of distraction can that be you know, well it can be trust me from experience but that that was the big the most pressure was wanting to perform well in front of my hometown and all the friends and family yeah and, and probably the team you grew up loving right which is dream come true in many ways but again adds that level of pressure right Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I went to the Astrodome, watched Nolan Ryan pitch a lot, him facing Tom Seaver with the Reds. And I remember bugging the bullpen catcher forever. Stretch Suba was his name for a baseball when I was eight, nine, ten years old. And he was still the bullpen catcher for the Astros when I got there. So I, <laughs> I reminded him that he never gave me a ball when I was a kid. And so that during batting practice, I would always throw probably 15 or 20 balls to kids in the stands kind of to, to spite Stretch Suba for never giving me a ball when I was a kid. So we, right. we had fun with it. And uh, kind of a sad day was when I got released by Houston, he came up and gave me a ball. So, oh. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing okay without the tears, and then you did that. <laughs> and, and then just, just to kind of keep going on the, on the baseball front, so from, from Houston – you had a few stops in, in your, in your career, but, but you, you got a ring right with the, with the diamondbacks and that kind of epic series with Gonzo, you know, getting that hit little blooper, whatever he had to do to get a ball in play against Mo. Well, talk, talk about, yeah. yeah. Talk about what that was like. <laughs> I mean, you got to be witness to part of, you know, one of the great greatest plays in major league baseball history. It, it was, I mean, the, the road getting there um, after Houston, Went back to Cleveland for a month or two. That didn't work out. The next year, went to Minnesota, and they turned me into a relief pitcher, So, um, which really prolonged my career by seven years and eventually gave me the ring. So um, uh, things didn't start out well in Minnesota, and we came up with the motto, take the good with the bad. And uh, it, was, it was a rough go for a month or 
but after that, we kind of got in a groove and uh, we eventually found my niche at as a relief pit. Uh, did well, uh, got traded to Boston a year and a half later, which was really a lot of fun uh, playing in Boston for the Red Sox and uh, having been in that Yankee Red Sox series uh, a couple times. And in the off season, or when I was in Boston, the, the kids and Sarah had already moved to Arizona. We were going to retire out in Arizona and just kind of life. And in the off season, they made us an offer. Arizona Dimebacks made us an offer, and it was like, well, we can't refuse that. We're going to be we're living here. We're going to be playing here. It's a great thing, and um, things worked out pretty good. I wanted to sign other places because I wanted to win. I wanted to um, win a World Series, and Sarah was like, well, you know, you never know what can happen. Eventually, they signed a guy named Randy Johnson, a guy named Billing, <laughs> and Gonzo. You know, yeah, Gonzo, and everything just started to fall into place. So we had a veteran team. Um, 9/11 hit that year, in right. and you know I might have an opportunity to to win and get to a World Series, and uh, things happened, and it was it was uh, the the worst thing probably in the history of, of the United States at, at that point and um, not knowing if we were going to play ball again. And eventually we did and eventually making it through the World Series, going to New York, going to 9-11, uh, being a part of, of bringing, I guess, America or the world back um, on its feet because um, to see the people in New York, it was, um, it was, it was wild to, to know what they had been through because you'd only seen it on television and not, really seen it in person and we got to witness it firsthand but they they were first class with, with as far as families at the games and taking care of everything and the games in new york were all one run games and they fought their way back to take the lead we won game six which set up uh, uh randy uh, kurt schilling uh roger clemens uh, epic matchup in game seven um Brandon came walking down to the bullpen in the seventh inning so that kind of, I knew my night was over when Randy came walking down the bullpen. I wasn't going to be the left-handed pitcher out of the bullpen at that point unless we did go extra innings. Um, he came in, did his thing, and um, the rest. Uh, biggest hit to me was Mark Grace leading off the ninth inning with, with a base hit. Right. Just one base runner off Mariano. And then Tony Womack's base hit. And um, Gonzo gets up there with the, what every little kid dreams of. In the backyard, bases loaded, World Series, two outs, bottom of the night. There was only one out, but it was still uh, an epic moment. Got Sarah in the stands thinking in the eighth inning, you know, what am I going to say to him? It's been a great year. We made it this far. Well, all the wives were yeah. kind of sitting together, and, you know, we're thinking it's over, and it's been a great year, and we're all kind of talking about what we're going to do to cheer him up, you know, that God was, you know, they were so close. Next year, is the ne you know, will be great, and we're all chatting. And it seemed like it was, I mean, it took time, but it seemed like minutes we were like, wait, wait, what? What? And then we went from kind of like, what are we going to do when we lose to jumping around like crazy people, you know, rushing the field. And it, it felt like it was just minutes, but it was a pretty cool feeling for sure. To yeah. see his, Wait, what was it? Go ahead, Sarah. I'm sorry. Yeah, to see his, or after so many years, to see his dream come true in – you know, it's hard to it's hard to get excited about anything after that. You know, that was like it was a great moment, and I was so lucky to be part of it. 
What, what was it like in New York, Yankee Stadium, post 9-11, baseball is back, when President George W. Bush comes out onto the field, throws the first pitch, strike right down the middle. I mean, I don't know if a Hollywood script could be choreographed any better. What was it like, Greg, from your perspective in the bullpen, just watching kind of a, a moment in history unfold as told through baseball? I mean, it's, you, you can't describe the feeling of being there in person. I mean, there's nothing else like it. That's what I've tried when people ask when we won, what it feel like, you can't describe it. In the same way with President Bush, I mean, when he walks out and he gives the thumbs up and throws, like you said, probably the best pitch of the series. I mean, a perfect <laughs> strike down the middle with a bulletproof vest on and an extra umpire was a Secret Service um, guy. Nobody really noticed that, but there were seven umpires out there and one of them was Secret Service. So it was, it was quite a moment and I was right there. I was in the dugout. I mean, the game hadn't started, so I still wasn't in the bullpen. And just to see that stadium, you could actually see the stadium kind of rocking. It was so loud and so such an American moment. But, and then as a person in the stands, I swear you could almost feel everyone take a breath in because you don't like your mind kind of, if, if something bad's going to happen, it's going to happen right this second. You know, you, you know, people, some wives didn't even come because they were afraid of another attack with George Bush. I mean, for his bravery to go out there in the middle of a baseball field, he's a target. In the you middle know, of New York. In the middle of New York, <laughs> the bravery and the, but you kind of felt everyone kind of hold their breath. And then just after the cheers, like Greg said, the stadium rocking with, you know, just tears and people were crying and it was great. Well, ESPN did a 30 for 30 on, on the first pitch of, of George Bush throwing it out. And the funny thing is he threw, went through the cage and threw a few um, to get his arm loose. And Jeter told him, uh, Derek Jeter said, you know, if you bounce it, they're going to boo you. <laughs> so, he, he made sure he was loose and he, he threw, I mean, just an unbelievable pitch for right down the middle. And I don't know of any president or any, any first pitch has ever been thrown more perfect. Fauci's was pretty good. Yeah. That was solid though. I mean, you gotta give Fauci some credit for just going out there and chucking that thing as far along <laughs> as he <it> can. <laughs> Some of those are five hopped up there, and the first bounce is at about 30 feet from the rubber. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Greg, I'm curious. So, we have gotten – we've actually been really lucky on these first several episodes of the podcast. We got to talk to Jeremy Affelt, who won three World Series with the Giants, and we got to talk to Ben Utech, who – this one, that has not aired yet, but Ben was on the uh, Colts Super Bowl team uh, with Peyton Manning that beat, the, that beat the Patriots and then went on to win a Super Bowl. Uh, got to ask them both the same question. What is that feeling running? So you're running in from the bullpen. What is that feeling getting into that dog pile, especially after you had worked so long in your career? We all know some, some guys win a World Series in their first year, never sniff it again. Some guys never get there. Some guys take, you know, more than a decade to get there, especially in your case, having worked so long and so hard for that moment. What, what is that feeling? Can you explain it? Like, there's, there's no other feeling. I mean, there, there are a couple other feelings, but you can't describe those either. <laughs> um, it, just be, the way things went about uh, after 9-11, Mariano Rivera, the, the best closer in the history of the game, um, being down a run, thinking we're done, and then 
not knowing I, – I, when the ball went in the air, when Gonzo hit the ball in the air, you're thinking, oh, no. But then you remember the infield's in, and now you're going, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's over. I, I was the last one on the field. I threw my jacket off, had turned my hat on backwards. I was jumping up and down, going crazy. He's crying and, right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's been 20 years. But um, just to, to realize our average age was 36 years old on that team. And a lot of guys hadn't won a World Series, uh, me included. So it was um, a special moment. And the greatest thing is it, it went on for, what, till five in the morning. I mean, that, that, that was one of the, the fun things, too. You, you got to celebrate a victory and, and not celebrate a, a good season. So to, to be able to win it, to be able to finally, I got the trophy, I got the ring. We got, we got everything that, that goes about winning a World Series. We still have my father-in-law painted a picture a painting of it. So um, it's a great feeling, indescribable unless you're in the moment. Even as, as a fan, it's probably different than a player who's – you're playing in your 200th game on the season at that point, counting spring training and the playoffs. And we had gone five games with the Cardinals, um, two, uh, two, two games with the Cardinals, five games with the Braves. I mean, we played 18 postseason games. So um, – we were tired. We were we were worn out. But bunch it, of old people. Bunch of old farts. <laughs> we, need, we needed our sleep at that point. But um, a great feeling knowing a uh, uh, life goal had been accomplished. Not just making it to a World Series, but but winning that ring. Yeah, and with all of the backstory, obviously with nine eleven, the Yankees, Mo, Gonzo, all of that. You know that that team had to bond in a way that especially after it was over, you know, and I know everybody has different, you know, experiences in clubhouses and things like that, but, you know, you guys had to have bonded in a weird way just over so many kind of oddball things that happened in that season. You guys stay in touch. Do you stay in touch with a chunk of those guys? And what, what is that got, like these days? We, we got a, a thread, a text thread. That we still go, we still talk to each other. It's great. Um, occasionally nobody will chime in and I'll, just happened to put something on there and then for 30 minutes people are just ding 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 so it's um it's fun we see each other um some of us do the alumni game in, in arizona some of us do the fantasy camps in arizona um a lot of guys are still coaching uh, around the the league the 20th anniversary is coming up next year and we're hoping we can get everybody back but like i said some are coaching some just um there were no bad seeds a lot, a lot of times um you, you in a clubhouse, you're together so long. It's like a family. You know, you're going to have bickering and, and arguing. But um, we were we were just a bunch of old guys who kind of policed ourselves and and got along. And, and the young guys bought into it that that were on the team. And that's it. Just I think that's what made it good. Is like the younger guys listened to the old guys, and the old guys kind of um, took care of business. Uh, coaching didn't really have much to do with um, us winning. Um, the talent and the, the leadership of the veteran guys is, is what pulled us through in that World Series. And Sarah, what was it like being a, a girlfriend of a ball player than a wife of a ball player? You know, there's so much travel, there's so much time commitment involved, and then you've got so many passions of your own, you know, that you want to pursue along with, with parenting kids with so much travel. What, what was that experience like in retrospect? Well, I wasn't a girlfriend very long. <laughs> Six weeks. We met married. Six, six weeks, weeks, right? Yeah, I got I got thrown into the fire. And I sometimes I you know I've heard from so many wives that they all say 
the minor leagues, when they were in the minor leagues, kind of with their husbands fighting their way to the top, they all say that that was, it was almost better than being in the major leagues because it's almost, you know, to just struggle. And they just, they always talk about the minor league was always just such a bonding experience for them, you know, because you're living in not the greatest hotels and you're, you know, ordering a lot of pizza and that kind of stuff. So I, part of me is kind of, it would have been fun to kind of be a part of that. And there's, you know, when you are the new wife on a team, you know, I was only 23 when we got married and some of the veteran wives on every team, just like on with guys, there's always a few kind of mean girls on a team that, you know, want to make sure that you know, you've got to earn your, earn your way. And, you know, that, that, that was kind of unfortunate, but the, you know, thankfully not, there wasn't too many of those, those mean wives, but so, but I did learn that when I became a veteran wife years later, I went out of my way to make the new wives feel very welcome and never feel the way I felt. Even the new girlfriends. The new girlfriends, you know, cause back in the day it was old school, like wives dressed up for the games. Um, why uh, girlfriends were not allowed to fly. Uh, that kind of thing. So well, a lot of a lot of guys had a few girls. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I under, I kind of understand that part, but you know, but like the yeah, things changed over the years for the better. So you know, it was it was fun to be a part of all of it. It's almost like a dream sometimes that it that it happened, but it is hard. You know, I think wives are we're so lucky and blessed that we get to have the lifestyle we have, but we are alone for most of the, the baseball season. So eight, eight months out of the year, we're single moms. Um, you know, we're um, doing a lot of it on our own. Uh, so it's just that, you know, people don't really know that part of it. And, you know, it can put a strain on many marriages, but I think for us, it kind of, it's kind of after retirement that you're kind of like, whoa, you're here a lot. <laughs> you know, so for us kind of that having time apart strengthened our marriage and then you know life happens you know we had our fourth child and uh you know he's um severely autistic and that he was diagnosed right when greg retired so that was a whole other chapter of life that we literally yeah that we had to to live (laughs) so kind of the, the fairy tale life ended kind of you know so but that's life right so so let let's dig into to Dawson because um, y'all are very public um, social media about Dawson who he is. So Dawson is, is what? 23. He's 19. 19. Uh, yeah. yeah. He's a big old boy. He's six, four. Yeah. Um, he's built like his dad. Yeah. yeah he's tall. And, yeah. So he was, wow, he was six foot four. I yeah. love it. Well, he, he had scoliosis surgery a couple of years ago. He was six, two and had a surgery. I didn't think it could happen. He, Grew two inches because his spine, his wow. spine was like seventy degree. Yeah, he, he was very yeah. curved. So they straightened him yeah. up, and he grew two inches out of surgery. Now he thinks he's like minute bowl. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I think you know you think what hap- what can happen when sudden tragedy strikes any family. You know, it could test anyone, and I think this was we were so lucky for so many years. This was the first thing that really took us by surprise that we weren't prepared for. And, you know, it was, he was uh, 14 months old when he just suddenly regressed into autism. You know, he was a normal baby. And then it was like someone unplugged him 
and he had just retired or was about to retire. And, um, you know, I think we both didn't handle it very well. And, you know, we didn't communicate the pain because I always describe it. It's kind of like a death, but there's no funeral. There's no flowers. There's no cards of condolences. You're just kind of living your life. And then all of a sudden, you know, those dreams are shattered. Everything you had dreamt and he's our only son. So all those things, especially for a dad kind of go out the window, you know, and, um, I think we both handled it differently. Ultimately, seven years later, we ended up getting divorced and we were divorced for nine years and then remarried four <laughs> years ago. So um, thus the book kind of explaining about, you know, we, it's kind of a kind of a weird love story in a way, but just kind of what can happen. It's kind of a guidebook on kind of what not to do <laughs> like for a couple, but um it's almost, we're, it's almost, we're almost glad it happened because not that I recommend people to go get divorced for a long time, but it's, um, we're probably better than we ever were even in our best years. So, so, so talk, talk a little bit about Dawson. So he's a, he, he's a, he's a big guy, six, four, 19 years old. And, and for, for the audience that doesn't know, he's, he's nonverbal. Yes. Um, so, so talk about what, just life with Dawson is like, I mean, this podcast is, you know, we, y'all have been super open about um, everything really in your lives. So I, I would love to give people just a, just a general idea on, on, on what it's like to have a son, a, a yeah. special kid like Dawson. So, you know, I think, you know, autism is such a spectrum. And in, in my book, I talk about that autism should be kind of staged much like cancer, because I think we all have seen the movie Rain Man, and I think a lot of people need to assume that, that they, you know, count toothpicks or play an instrument really well or can do math equations. You know, that's far from what Dawson is. You know, he is profoundly autistic, you know, um, can't say a word. He'll be with us for the rest of his life. He'll need lifelong care forever. So, you know, and I think when, when a child is first diagnosed, you know, I think they are diagnosed earlier and earlier now. Um, you know, there is hope, you know, there's lots of treatment plans and, but, you know, 19 years ago, it was kind of like you get the diagnosis and they literally say, you know, here's a couple of pamphlets, good luck to you. And you're kind of the rest into this world where you kind of have to become a doctor and search and research and try. And we've tried everything. And, you know, for some kids, they don't, recover, so to speak. And some kids go on and go on to college and live a fairly normal life. So it's such a spectrum. And um, I think that's the hardest part is, you know, trying to let people know that, you know, that they're all so very different. You know, it's not like a cancer diagnosis where there's kind of a treatment plan to follow. And, you know, there is nothing to really follow. So that, you know, that's, it's a lot of shots in the dark that we've taken over the years you know, some things work, some things don't. But on the positive side, you know, I always say too, it's like joining a club that you never really wanted to join. But the people that are in this club are the finest people that I never have met. You know, people like yourself that go out and and hold events for awareness for all kinds of disabilities. You're a great spokesperson. I love your post you did a while back about using the R word and I reposted that and, you know, there's a lot of people that I wouldn't have met because of Dawson. So 
Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about that that R word just super yeah. fast. So like the no, I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone ever intentionally uses that word in in the way that that it was originally intended, right? So like I, I want to give people a break and understand, but at the same time, if you say that word, I'm going to call you out. On it. Like, <laughs> it's kind of that simple. And even and I think what I think the post you're actually referring to was um, in social media these days, we tend to use the word like libtard or trump tard and we're not going to go into politics at all but like just using even the root of that word is implying something that um we shouldn't be implying the reality is and um i got to meet sarah and greg really for the first time um at an arc of the capital area event in austin Uh, my wife is the um, is the board chair for Arc of the Capital Area, and it's the largest organization in Austin uh, for people with resources for people with um, who are experiencing disability, whatever that means, right? And so that could be autism, that could be cerebral palsy, that could be Down syndrome, it could be a million different things. And I have just found over the years that if you view just people as people mm-hmm. who have just different sets of ideas or abilities or race or whatever it actually doesn't matter and i know sarah you and i have maybe even like gone back and forth on social media before about particularly in public and i would love for you to talk about that a little bit because when you take dawson out he he gets stares he gets he gets looks he um you know and so and, and, and I have been out with, you know, many kids with Down syndrome or something like that and have the same thing. So what's your, what's your take on that? What, what would you love for people to do if they see a special kid or special adult like Dawson when they're out at the grocery store? Yeah. And, and I did, I had a blog for a while before I wrote my book and I, it was, I wrote the a blog and I don't know how it has a lot of shares right now, but it, um, it was after his spine surgery and I was so excited to get him out of the house and, and we went to the grocery store and I mean, I'm used to people staring at him cause he is a big boy. He makes loud audible sounds. He whistles very loud and he's always shaking a ribbon or he has some sort of object that calms him down that, so it's hard to, it's hard to not notice them. And I, I understand that and I totally accept that. But it was this one day in the grocery store where, you know, it was three or four people that just, and they were adults that were just giving us this, these stares that I can't describe. And and, and that day I was probably feeling a little sensitive because I was so proud of how far he'd come. And it just really upset me that adults should know better and, and, and some would purposely turn away or not. It, you could just feel it. And so I wrote a blog about that. And I, and I, what I said in the blog was to, she came home hot. I was hot. I came. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I, I, we, what I, what love, what I love most is when people do look at him and smile or some people will, Hey, you know, or give him a high five or um, that means the world to, to us because I swear he knows, he knows, he understands you know, and I think, you know, they just want to be accepted and loved like we all want to be, even though if they can't express it. And, you know, when someone does smile at us or even like, wow, that must be really hard. Yes, it is hard, you know, but just to acknowledge and not stare, but say hi and make eye contact with us. You know, we're not monsters. We're not 
Last year we took him to the opening of the indoor baseball facility at, at Texas, University of Texas. Oh, and, um, you know, he, he, the kids know him. A lot of people have seen him. And so we're kind of off to the side. And you can tell when he's zooming in on someone. Because sometimes <laughs> he'll just go right up to him and look at him. And Chris Del Conte was there. And he went and got right in Del Conte's face. And Del Conte turned around. And he was like, whoa because he's taller than Chris, and I kind of got there because I knew where Dawson was headed with it. And, you know, I just explained, you know, he's autistic, nonverbal. If, if he gets close to you, he wants to smell you. That's a good thing. He, he likes gets, to smell he you. He likes to come he likes, up and, yeah. and give you a little sniff. And so <laughs> Chris turned around and, and started talking to him, shook his hand because Dawson kind of shake your hand. And I just thought it was funny that everyone there, he goes up to the athletic director <laughs> at the University of Texas and gets in his fingers literally. Yeah. Yeah, a sniff is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I talk all the time about, um, you know, when people ask me that same question, just with people that we, we work with, we don't have a child with any disabilities in our family. But but again, my wife, she's a pediatric physical therapist. And so we have uh, a, a ton of friends who um, it, it almost, almost where we think that you know, disabilities exist kind of more prevalently than they, than they actually do. But, you know, we have tons of friends with CP or, or, or children with CP or adult children with CP or Down syndrome or something like that. And I always just tell people just, as you said, Sarah, just say hi, like just treat everybody as a human being. And even with somebody like Dawson, who will always be with one of you guys, by the way, like, it's okay. I tell people all the time, it's okay to ask questions, especially kids, you know, and I, we've had that conversation with our own kids who are 13 and 10. And there are always going to be people who look different than you, who act differently than you. And it's okay to walk up and, and ask them a question. It, it, and even if you feel like it is inappropriate, it's never, I've always said it's never inappropriate. Like we all love talking about our kids. Right. And so, you know, get me started. I'll talk about my kids. I'll bet get you guys started. You'll talk about your kids. So there's no, there's no, I would much rather see people just break down that barrier by saying hi, by saying hello, by striking up a conversation. Maybe it helps that I'm the guy who like, if I'm standing in line at the grocery store when we were allowed to stand in line at the grocery store, um, that, that will just strike up a conversation with whoever's standing in front of me anyway. And probably I'm annoying about that, but like I enjoy talking to people in general. And to me, like I really enjoy talking to people who have a different experience than me. And I just think we can all learn a little something by, if you see something you don't understand, ask about it. Like there's no, there's no shame in that. And no one is ever going to judge you. You're much more likely to judge them for staring and being inappropriate that way. Right. And it is kind of an isolating, you know, we're lucky enough that we have three older typical children, but I belong to a lot of Facebook groups of autism moms, and especially during the pandemic. And there, a lot of these kids have been home with their parents for the last five months. And moms are, they'll be honest. They're like, I'm contemplating suicide and taking my kid with me. Like they just can't, it's a very isolating you know, you can't, they won't wear the mask. You know, they can't, you can't take them out. School shut down. And, you know, so I think there's, there's a lot more that people don't know being on lockdown with a child with a disability. There's no therapist, there's no respite. There's none of that right now. So, you know, I got to give a shout out to all these special, we're fortunate that we have each other. And sadly, the divorce rate with a special needs child is 90%. So times dad, 
pieces out about year two into a diagnosis. And so mom is usually the one, you know, dealing with it all. And it's, you know, the resources are, are very minimal, even in a non-pandemic. So anytime someone could smile and let them feel that they're not alone is a great gift to any parent with a special kid because there's so much that people don't see. Yeah. So I'm kind of a nerd in that I love doing research on people's stories. Like, I'm so glad you all could do the podcast today. But even if you canceled, I would love doing the research and learning more about you. That's just kind of how I am. Me too. So Sarah, um, Rounding Home, your book. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, very intrigued by the cover. Yeah. So I, I know people can't see it, but you can Google it, you know, if, if you're listening to the podcast. So you're in a dress. Yeah. You're standing on a pitching rubber mm-hmm. facing the outfield. No one is on the field with you. Mm-hmm. On the ground is a, is it a bottle of wine, a bottle of champagne? Yeah. And what what is what is the imagery of this, and how does it set the table for your story? It's funny. For years, I wanted to write this book, but when Greg and I were divorced, I thought my round, and I always had the name picked out well before I wrote the book, thinking my happy ending to my life story would be with another man that was going to make my life great again. You know. And, um, but as things evolved, so it's, ex- the cover is exactly what kind of what I had in my head. So, and I had pictures with the bottle and without, because I didn't want people to think it was about a book about alcoholism, but. Um, we had lots of pictures with her with a bottle. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I think the vibe I wanted to go for is that there's many times I felt alone. You know, then of course the baseball analogy, um, kind of scared about what's ahead and that kind of feeling of just voidness out there of fear. Um, and yes, my glass of wine was my treat to myself many nights. Sometimes it was too much. Sometimes, it, you know, so it was just kind of my, if you look really close on the cover, there's a ribbon laying there, which so everything kind of signifies something. The ribbon is for Dawson who always has a ribbon in his hand. And then the white dress kind of signifies um, I've been married a lot of times in between when Greg and I were divorced. I had this tendency to say yes to anyone who asked me to marry them. So I did that three more times before we got remarried. So kind of the white dress symbolizes all that. Um, And that's just kind of, it kind of represents all that I felt for a long time, all kind of wrapped up in a picture. And that's actually the, Longhorn baseball field. So if you look really close to, you can kind of see the Longhorn had to, out. Had to blur it out. You had to kind of blur it out for, for money reasons. For yeah, <laughs> yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. U- UT's serious about their licensing. Uh, oh, yes, yeah. yes. So, um, so that's kind of the story behind that cover. So 2002, uh, Greg, you retire as a major league player. Uh, Dawson is a, a baby or very young at the time. 18 months old. He was diagnosed. 18 months old. Greg, just in terms of being a ball player, that piece of it, how hard is it after 17 years, clubhouses, spring training, charter flights, camaraderie, locker rooms, performance, the adrenaline, the attention to walk away from baseball and to have that void kind of in your life missing kind of a brotherhood, so to speak? Yeah, you played from the time you're six years old. So um, that's all you've, you've basically done your, your entire childhood your half your adult life so it was um it wasn't an, a tough decision because the hitters told me it was time to retire and 
I knew I, I was losing uh, my ability to stay at that level. So um, that part wasn't hard. The, the hardest part was just being with the guys and being in the clubhouse and being uh, going, being able to go to the ballpark. And, and um, of course, the 2002, I was still playing and when that's when Dawson got diagnosed. And I pretty much gave up baseball anyway. I wanted to figure out what was wrong with my child and, and help him out in any way. So um, baseball was secondary to me at that point. And um, so we did, we, after a couple of years after I retired, we had moved, moved back to Austin. I volunteer coached with a buddy. So kind of get, get that baseball um, able to go the field and put the uniform on and, and be around it. But um, it, it wasn't easy just because it was something I'd always done. And, and I guess I didn't, take it very well. <laughs> but I, gotta, I talk about it in the book where it's, I don't even think he realized, I think it's common with professional athletes when they retire, a lot of them can kind of go into a depression, you know, everything that they knew about themselves and their life, everything that made them who they are is gone. And a lot of them are very young with nothing to do. It sounds amazing to just do nothing, you know, in your mid thirties, but to not have a, purpose anymore and no one really cares anymore it's kind of I think it's a lot for it and then I, then you throw the diagnosis yeah I think it, it was so a it recipe was like a double whammy all at once and yeah, I, for disaster I, yeah. just, I just I shut down I shut down as a, as a dad as a husband as a, obviously a ball player so it was it wasn't easy for a while yeah <laughs> but, but we learned a lot about ourselves through that and that's it again that's not to keep talking about the book, but that's what I wanted to, for any newly diagnosed family to just be aware of the signs of what can happen. And you know, the divorce rate, even with a professional athlete is extremely high. You throw in a, a, a disabled child and it just tests you beyond what you can. And I think that's with any sudden tragedy, whether it's an illness or, you know, it, it, something like that, you find out who you're married to when, when, something terrible happens. So Greg, just to shift into, so uh, full, full disclosure, and I've told you this face to face. So the first time I met Greg, I fanboyed a little bit because <laughs> I grew up in Austin and I went to um, my thing was UT baseball. And I went as a kid to, you know, my, my heroes when I was a kid were Spike Owen and Mike Brumley and guys like that. And um, you know, you came along right around that time frame. you know, just a couple years later, maybe after those guys. And, you know, that was coming off of Roger Clemens and Calvin Schiraldi and that entire group. I think I told you the first time we met that I still have a fantastic memory of my sister and I watching Mike Brumley catch that last out in the 1983 College World Series. And she and I are gripped around each other, jumping up and down, acting like crazy people as if we were on the field uh, with that team. So, you know, when I was a kid, I, I, I watched Greg pitch at Dishfalk Field for Coach Gus. And I would love for you just to maybe, – maybe I'm the only one who cares. Maybe this is my own <laughs> personal thing. But I would love for you to just talk about what it's like to pitch at the University of Texas, what it was like to pitch for Coach Gus, what it was like to be in, in Omaha, um, you know, what, that, what, what life was for those several years. I think Coach just had his 89th birthday a couple of days ago. So yeah. he, he's still with us. I'm hoping they, they retire that number 18 before um, he does 
you know, get any much older because it, he deserves to have that number retired at the University of Texas. But to um, happy birthday to Coach. What's that? Happy birthday to Coach. Yes, eighty-nine years young. He um, University of Texas baseball, as, as you know, in in the mid '80s, that that was the elite program. So um, not knowing that I would be able to go there because out of high school I was 84, 85 mile an hour left-handed pitcher that threw strikes, and fortunately I had a best friend that was really good, and we were on the same little league teams and pony league teams and high school teams and our senior year, they were coming and, and looking at him a lot. And Rusty Richards is his name. He was the first baseman on our teams. And um, I pitched a game, a, a Philadelphia Phillies scout saw me pitch, called Coach Gus and the, yeah, Richards, Rusty's legit, but the pitcher's pretty good too. And he asked my name and asked how hard I threw and Coach Gus laughed at him because I only threw 84 miles an hour. And I guess, you know, he had to throw harder to, to be able to go there. But on that recommendation, I was given a, a full scholarship to the University of Texas with my, with my best friends. Ended up being roommates, um, going there. Our, you know, everyone has fun their freshman year. And my fr fall of my freshman year, I'm ready to leave because I'm not throwing well. I'm not far from home, but I've never been away from home too much. And, um, it, it was something where Rusty and friends talked me into staying forward to my the spring of my freshman year, the two guys that were going to be the ace pitchers, Eric Boudreaux and Wade Phillips, got in a car accident uh, two weeks before the season. So now kind of thrown in, you, you're going to have to throw. Uh, didn't do well my first start and then went out to Arizona State. <clears throat> came in in relief. And Barry Bonds, Odeby McDowell, and Mike Devereaux were on that team, along with five other big leaguers, eventual big leaguers. And my philosophy – they, they were they were pretty good, <laughs> and my velocity um, peaked that night at 93 miles an hour, and, and never went back. So um, that was fortunate for me. It, I, I got stronger, and the competition got better, and, and my game went to the next level. Um, Coach Gus gave me the ball whenever I wanted it. There were times when I would warm up, and him not even tell me to go warm up, and I would come in and relief. Um, so he knew. He knew the right buttons to push. He knew um, when to say something to a team because we were good. We won almost 70 games all three years. Each year I was there. So he didn't have to say much and do much. But when he did, you listen because um, he's, he's a great baseball mind. And the biggest thing was he, he kept us together. And, you know, he, he told me a few times and other guys that were pretty good to we need to get that chip off our shoulder because we can be brought down to earth. It just is as is, is easy as, as we made it up to the top. So um, but playing, playing for him, a legend, uh, playing at the University of Texas, one of the best in the country at the time, trying to get back there, back to there now. Um, uh, couldn't ask for more. I would not have been the pitcher I was and made it to the level I, I did. I don't think if I'd gone anywhere else. And, Remind me, so you guys went to Omaha. You were there for three years, correct? And yes. We were and our you, freshman year. Yeah, and you were, you were National Player of the Year, your junior year, if I remember. Sophomore right. year. Sophomore year. Sophomore, yeah. sophomore year. We, uh, we, um, they won it in 83, the one you saw Bromley catch and you and your sister were hugging. Um, so next Jumping year, up and down. Next, no, next year, we're not ranked. We're not anything because they, they just won the National Championship, lost a lot of people. 
not knowing the pitching staff because they had a pretty good pitching staff that year they won, but we made it to Omaha and um, again got to face um, the same Arizona State team in Omaha and that just put up 26 runs against Oklahoma State. But playing there as an 18-year-old kid against those guys on national television, um, baseball is baseball. You try to get, you know, at the time ESPN had just started doing the college game, so you you try not to think about that part of it and just concentrate on what you love to do, and that's playing baseball. But unfortunately, we came in second that year, made it back to Omaha next year as the number one team expected to win. That was probably the best team in 1985. Um, you can maybe in University of Texas history as far as offensive numbers go. So um, we were supposed to win. We didn't. Um, well, Aug Aug Garrido beat us the year before, and then Miami – end up beating us in 85. So um, losing out on a chance that could have been a back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back national championship teams for the University of Texas, it, it still haunted me because um, that's the pinnacle in college. You want, you want to win the national championship. And um, not being able to do that was, was upsetting. Fortunately for myself individually, I went back in 2005 as a volunteer coach and picked the right year because we went to Omaha that year and won a national championship. So I got the ring as a coach. So can you paint a picture of what Omaha is like for those few weeks in the summer? You've got college students, you've got college players, you've got an entire kind of city that is like the centerpiece of everybody's hopes and dreams. You've got Northern schools that it's too cold for them to go out and work out in February. You've got the Southern schools like Texas and Georgia and uh, University of Florida that are coming and converging, and, and what's that like for those couple of weeks? It's, it, back in the day, um, there was a holiday in there. There was a holodome because inside they had the pool, it had a putt putt course, and all kind of things. And four teams stayed there. So my freshman year, we had Oklahoma State, um, I believe maybe Cal State, and New Orleans, and us. Where four teams are in the same hotel. You don't see that now. Now everyone has their own specialized hotel and banners and everything everywhere. So, you got to know the other teams, um, whether you beat them or not. You, you became friends with them and still friends with a lot of them now. Um, Rosenblatt Stadium was was just a shrine because you see it and then you, you're able to play there. And it was um, – He's getting choked up right now. <laughs> well, because they, they took it down. They don't play there anymore. Um, it was just a beautiful stadium. The old, it smelled. It reminded me of Fenway and old Yankee Stadium just because that, that was – um, as a college player, that's, that's where you wanted to play. And as, as a kid, I know it was only on TV a couple of years before I was able to play there. You watched it. You watched the University of Texas every year play there. So you wanted to be part of a team that was able to, to play at Rosenblatt and go to Omaha. And when Rosenblatt was there, it was in the neighborhood. The zoo was there. Um, the, the town, that's what they lived for. They lived for those two and a half weeks every year. And they took care of the teams, took care of the fans, and backed everything that went into the College World Series and still do in the new stadium, which is very fan-friendly, um, larger, bigger, bigger crowds. Um, but Omaha's is – when you think of college baseball, Omaha is what comes to mind. For sure. Uh, Greg, I'm just curious. So um... – Outside of Omaha, so on the field, who's a guy who had your number and who's a guy whose number you had? Um, the guy you always wanted to face and the guy you never wanted to face? Ooh. Big league, college, I don't really care. Whatever. 
There was a lot. College, college, I was pretty good, so no one, no one really scared me in college. I was going to say, no one wanted to face you in college. <laughs> major leagues, I mean, because you major leagues, you play them more often. College, you, you didn't play them too often. But um, Jeff King in college um, went to Arkansas. I threw a two-hitter against Arkansas, and he had both hits. Um, I don't know. Big leagues, uh, if you look at the baseball reference, and sometimes when I see guys or I know I'm going to see them, I look up the numbers. Cal Ripken, I mean, <laughs> pretty good ball player. Benito uh, Santiago. Benito Santiago. <laughs> I, I could throw the rosin bag and he'd probably hit a home run off me. And um, uh, Juan Pierre, I think he was seven for eight because guys are like, Juan Pierre, a little slap hitter. I always wanted to strike him out. I couldn't. Greg, yeah. I'm telling you, in my opinion, and, and Matt's my witness on this, Juan Pierre, in my opinion, has the most underappreciated career of maybe a ball player in this generation. He's a couple. He's a couple hundred hits shy of three thousand. He had an incredible career. And could could run. The only thing he could, didn't have a very good arm, but he could get to every ball that was hitting the outfield. I mean, a great player. Uh, licking my chops. I just coached in the league down here against him, Pete Cavilia. <laughs> yeah, I, I got to know him because we were in the Holodome together in Omaha, and then um, just friends of friends and. Um, he was with the Rangers, and I was in Cleveland. I would literally try to quick pitch him to make him call timeout because he would step out and then I would act like I was going to throw a pitch. And then when he'd get back in the box, I would just stand there and wait for him to call timeout. <laughs> and I don't know why, because um, he was a pretty good hitter, a pretty good power hitter. But I believe out of 30 or so at bats, I struck him out 20 times in his career. Yeah. I and could tell I him fastball is coming and he just couldn't hit it for some reason. Yeah, and he and he could hit. I remember some college World Series games. I mean, that man, he was a man among boys. He was huge anyway and just hit some just absolute tanks. They came, at to, Austin. They came to Austin in, for a, the only time we really ever played them outside of Omaha, and we all stayed out. There were 40 guys in the dugout to watch him take batting practice, and he started hitting homers, and, of course – 18-year-old college kids, we started kind of making, ooh, oh, inky, big. And he came over and challenged our dugout. <laughs> he called us a bunch of front-running blah, blah, blahs. And if anybody wants to step out, let's go. And nobody, you could hear a pin drop in our dugout. Yeah. And he, two games, he went six for ten, but didn't hit a homer. Had four doubles, but didn't hit a homer at this fall. Yeah, and it should be said, when he's hitting batting practice at Dish Falk, for anybody who doesn't know college baseball, Dish Falk is a cavern. It is not easy to hit home runs in that ballpark. And it's got a just massive center field, like 420 or something, with a with essentially a, a little green monster attached to it. So if he was taking batting practice today, he probably could have hit one in the tennis center. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, unreal. He could probably wow. still do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Greg, what was it like just during your career to play with such great players? And you play 17 years, you have great managers, you have great players, and, and to play with Hall of Famers behind you when you're on the mound. You know, Barry Larkin at shortstop, Craig Biggio at second base, Randy Johnson, you know, you're maybe going in to, to pick up the ball from him. I mean, not that he, you know, not that he went four innings very often. But One time I did. <laughs> who's the best player you ever played with? Oh, Any position? No, oh, I mean um... – at the time, he was he was just the eighth. Paul Molitor was um, incredible. Oh my gosh! I mean, just a, a quiet leader. You know, you have guys that lead by example and guys that like to, to speak. He was an example guy. He he was there. He he prepared himself. 
Um, he played the game right, so to speak, and um, was just a, a, a great hitter. He was fun to play against when he was in Milwaukee, but when I, when I got to, to Minnesota and he was there, just a, a guy who would take young guys aside and talk to them and just always prepared and taught them how, how to go about pregame, during the game, and conduct yourself after the game. Um, so that, that was always fun. Uh, playing with him, uh, Steve Carlton. I got to play with him, my ch- one of my childhood heroes in Cleveland for a year. Um, I would go out and just listen to him when he would throw a bullpen. Um, he would throw a pitch, talk for 30 seconds, throw a pitch, talk for 30 about just about why he would throw this in situations. And I would just sit out there and be like, wow, I mean, this is one of my heroes. If I could only have played with Nolan Ryan, my career would have been perfect which I eventually got to in the 89 All-Star game. No one was in the 89 All-Star game. And, um, oh, who else? Randy, of course. Um, who else? I mean, just those guys, they're Barry. I know you're a Cincinnati guy, and Barry's one of the, one of the coolest um, guys you'll ever meet uh, on and off the field. He's, he's a proven leader, not only by example, but talks to, to the guys, still is in the game a lot. Um, doing the stuff for Major League Baseball and, and um, international baseball. So Barry, Barry was fun. And, and those guys are where they are in, in Cooperstown because of um, not only the way they conduct themselves numbers-wise, that's why you get in the Hall of Fame, but because of the, the teammate and the leaders that they were. Is it true that Steve Carlton's workouts were as intense as, as they were portrayed? Yes, never ran. Didn't do any running. Didn't even do it bike. He was kind of a not a he was martial arts, I guess you can say it. He put little cuff weights on his ankles and his his wrist and just always do um, martial arts movements and stuff. He he could probably kill you in sixteen different ways just with his hands. <laughs> he was so strong and, and he's about six five. So he was um, fun to be around. Very very eclectic guy. Um, but you loved um, – I loved it just to see the way watching him as a kid and then being able to sit in the locker room with a guy who you idolized and watching him go about his business was pretty cool. And he was so, at the tail, tail end of his career at that point, right? He's probably 20 years in the big leagues. At, oh, at that yeah. He was – he was um, came to us just for probably half the year and at the trade deadline he went to Minnesota. But um, fun, fun guy to – have a, a, a bourbon and diet cook with and, and talk baseball. <laughs> the Kool-Aid of Kentucky bourbon. We love it. I, I always like when Greg told stories about Mark Grace, like him in the locker room, like just like how funny he was. Well, he, he's a Hall of Famer, just ask him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, great Grace is funny. I mean, that's, that was part of that 0-1 team that just kept the people – you know, if we got beaten in a close game, you didn't worry about it because Gracie was going to be chirping and, and Schilling was going to be chirping and Randy was going to be mad. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, y'all had some characters on that team. It wasn't just, a, I mean, not just veterans, but but definitely some guys with some personality, um, good and bad, right? I, I, I would I would guess that uh, that locker room was a, was a piece of work. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you didn't. Like I said, the, the, we might have seen Bob Brinley come in twice, our manager. So um, we conducted it. We ran it. Um, if, like, if we got beat in a close game, we, we didn't worry about it because we knew we were good. And I don't know if we 
the last two months of that season, we lost two games in a row. So um, we didn't we didn't let it happen. We policed ourselves, and um, at times maybe enjoyed ourselves, but we were prepared when the game started. <laughs> and, and maybe maybe just real quick, since you've mentioned um, Bob Brindley here, do you give him a lot of credit for knowing just how to stay away? Like in some ways, I think that's that's got to be tough on a manager, but. But if you know your team, right, that, that's, the, that's always been the key to me of a great manager is understanding who your guys are. And, I mean, it's, it's got to be great that he gave you all the space to just be you, right? Yeah, he, that was his first year to be a manager. He had been in the booth doing the yep. broadcast, so he knew the team. There was a young team as far as franchises go, just four years, but he had seen everyone there and, and traveled with the team, knew the guys, an ex-player himself. Um, first day of spring training, you know, some coaches, managers will come in with a full notebook full of notes and, and rules. Well, Bob Brindley came in with a, a cocktail napkin <laughs> and goes, here are the team rules. Show up on time and be ready when the game starts and threw the napkin on the floor. <laughs> and that was pretty much one of the two or three meetings we had the entire season with Bob Brindley because he knew as, as a player what it took as a manager. Yeah, he, he could – yell at times but never at an individual per se he would just get mad because people get mad over 100 200 ball games in, in a year so he, he knew his spot and knew that that we were going to be okay in that locker room and outside of coach gus who were some coaches or managers in your life that you look back on that shaped you as a man as a husband, as a dad, as a ball player, all of those things. Wow. We had a lot of people. Um, as a player, um, I guess my dad would be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> every, every kid's father is your, is your coach, probably your first coach. And yeah, he taught me discipline on the field, um, got throw, thrown out of one game in high school and I had to apologize to the umpire after the game. Love it. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, he, was, he, was, he was very strict about the way I went about my business. I mean, even just playing catch. So little things added up over your lifetime, getting to the next level. Um, I got my tenure, my literally coach Les Lowry who took us in and, and did things. Um, Coach uh, Clint Thomas, my pitching coach at the University of Texas, um, called almost every pitch I threw in college. And when he, when, with him calling pitches, it kind of taught me eventually to, to learn myself how to throw my own game without needing help from a coach. Um, Mel Stoudemire in Houston, pitching coach. Um, Dick Such in, in Minnesota, pitching coach. Tom Kelly, manager in Arizona. Um, Lou Pinella, one of the biggest characters in the game, loved that guy. He he would get he didn't care if you were Barry Larkin or me. I mean, he he jumped on everybody. Got in a fight with Rob Dibble the year I was there. Um, a great coach because he he was an ex-player. He he knew what it took to day in and day out, knew when to get on people. Um, you know, Mark Connor, a pitching coach in, in Arizona. Just you you. Probably name every coach I ever played for because at some point, not just the pitching coach or the manager, some coach is going to have an impact on you. Like a teacher, like a school exactly. teacher, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Like a so, teacher, like a second father, especially when, you know, maybe dad is back home in Houston and, and you're on the road for the first time. And I went to the big leagues at 21. So yeah, I still, I was young and foolish. I needed someone. And that's when the, your teammate Carlton's and, and those guys, when you're young, Bud Black um, was a teammate of mine. He, he kind of took us under his wing when he was a veteran player. So um, guys understand as a veteran, you get these young guys because if you want to stay in the game a long time, there's a lot out there that can distract you. Um, and, and these guys understand that because they were young players one time and maybe learned a lesson. So um, players, coaches, I mean, every, everyone pretty much has an impact on you at some point. How did you all, after retirement, you got divorced, were divorced for nine years, got remarried. How did you all find your way back to each other? And what kind of... <laughs> well, what kind of rating does this have? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I think kind of, kind of thus the rounding home. So, you know, kind of while we were divorced, our son was diagnosed with a neuromuscular disease and was declining very quickly. We were both married to other people at the time, but we found ourselves um, lots of doctor visits, scary doctor visits, sad doctor visits. And it was uh, kind of after a, a particularly kind of hard doctor visit where we got some really bad news. I'm crying and I'm hugging him. And, you know, it just, when you're again, kind of going through another situation, you realize how much you miss because our, our, as wonderful as our spouses were and accepting of our son, nobody loves your child more than you do. And nobody could feel that pain like you and your spouse do. You know, it's just nature. You can't help it. And, um, you know, it was one night he had texted me and just said, I miss you. And I was like, I miss you too. I go, maybe someday we'll, we'll get back together again. And, you know, someday, and he just said, it needs to be sooner than later. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> we, we um, sat, it's kind of sad. Our we continued other, to uh, doctor visits, talk. And yeah. And I didn't want to go back into this. You know, I didn't want to make another mistake because, you know, there was events that led to that, you know, to the divorce in the first place. So I was kind of had a, a little bit of a guard up, but nothing felt more right and more natural than anything that we've ever experienced. And obviously our marriages to the other people weren't perfect, but um, it's, it was all that we needed. And we've never looked back since. It was the best decision. Here's, here's a week for you. <laughs> On Monday, I sold my house. Tuesday, she sold her house. Wednesday, her divorce was final. Thursday, my divorce was final. Friday, we fly to Arizona and get married. In one week. <laughs> In one week. <laughs> That's a busy five days. <laughs> And then we closed on day six on the house we bought together. So yep. we're sitting around the closing table and they're, you know, the, the paperwork is a little iffy because my name, last name doesn't match and all, everything's all messed Wait up. Wait a minute, you're Swindell yeah. something, sw yeah, you're Swindell yeah. twice? You so, married your sister? Yeah, and so the, the ladies are on the closing table. We're like, this needs to be a book. I'm like, oh, it will be. That was fun. How were you all different individually when you got married the second time? And how had you transformed over that, the time that you were not married? Well, I think we definitely don't sweat the small stuff anymore. And there's also, you know, I think having little 
children can contest even the strongest marriage, you know, just the stress and the busyness and you're running in all different directions. And I think having an excessive amount of money as everyone thinks that that's a wonderful thing. You know, money is the center of all evil. You know, it created a lot of just almost more problems. Now we're just kind of normal people. You know, we're just kind of, you know, we want to borrow money from people now, you know, so it just kind of, kind of, I think we both were kind of on, I think being humbled is not always a bad thing. We both were humbled. We both realized we're human and we make mistakes and that we're not perfect and the things. She, she's the captain. I'm Gilligan. <laughs> no, Skip not it. always. Sometimes. No, you, you run this one. Hospice. <laughs> I'm a Gabriel house person. But it, the things that I thought were so, what was so troublesome in our marriage are nothing. Like it's nothing. Like that wasn't, there was underlying issues, but like it's, we've learned to, and we, we communicate. If something's bothering one of us, we talk about it right there. We don't let it fester and then turn into something, turn into 10 other things down the road. Like I think all women like to hold things in and then implode all the stuff that we ever wanted to say in one sitting. So, but there's really nothing to fight about anymore. But, you know, we're pretty much empty nesters with just Dawson now. So life is pretty calm. You know, we're not being pulled in different directions. But we also value, like, we don't ever want to lose each other again. Because we've been to the other side. The grass was not greener on the other side. And we don't ever want to mess up again. So, you know, I know that's not, most people can't imagine remarrying their ex, but... I couldn't imagine not being with him now. Well, I think that's a really good place for us to wrap up. <laughs> I, I, you know, you guys, um, you have been, I, I think, I think the listeners should know that we, we did not know each other personally until what less than a year ago. Yeah. And um, every single time I have asked something of you guys, you've always said yes. And I think, you know, I, again, I've gotten to meet some really interesting people who've had some very cool lives um, with what I've gotten to do in my life. And, you know, you guys have just been so generous with literally, and, and I know it's not just with me, like, I know I'm not, you know, I, I'm just one person that you say yes to. And so I just, I just appreciate that you're both so willing to be so open and honest about your story and that you're willing to tell it, that you're willing to write a book about it, you know, that, that Greg, you support the writing of the book about it, you know, I mean, all of those things. And, you know, that's a, that's a scary, scary place to be. And I know I mentioned talking, when we talked with Ben Utech the other day from the Colts, he, he talks about the word vulnerability a lot. And um, I'm one of those guys, um, you know, it's funny, you know, Greg, Greg chokes up. I, I think I, I was with you uh, when you choked up a lot of talking about Dawson uh, when we were physically together. And, you know, I'm, I'm that same guy. I'm a guy who chokes up really easily. And I think that that idea of everybody being more vulnerable, I think this idea, especially in this current world that we're living in, that's just kind of a mess, to be honest. And I don't care what side of the aisle you sit on or anything like that. The reality is if we would all just allow ourselves to be a little more vulnerable, to listen to one another, to find our way back to old friendships, old relationships, old marriages, you know, really find those people that, that kind of make us and shape us who we are. 
um, I think we'd all be in a lot better position. And, you know, you guys, I, I, I know your, I know your story is an odd one. I know maybe, maybe that's why it makes it a story quote unquote, but at the same time, you know, I think it's super inspirational, you know, of being able to sort of let go of all the, pardon my French, of all the bullshit and just allowing yourselves to be each other and, and not really caring what the rest of the world thinks and, you know, being there for your son and your kids and, and everything else. And I, I, I just find you both to be, I'm not blowing smoke. Like I, I just find you both to be really inspirational. And, you know, I, uh, th- this is going to sound funny since we're talking to each other face to face, but, you know, Greg, when I was a little kid was one of my heroes and, you know, being able to now get to know you guys on a personal level, you know, it just, you know, you live up to both of you live up to, to way more than I could have ever imagined as a, as a 10 year old kid watching Greg pitch in the college world series. So I just want to thank you personally for taking the time um, and for just being who you are, honestly. Thanks for having us and letting us talk. We like to talk baseball and Dawson. So that was a good (laughs) Good little combination. That's yes. right. That's right. So you can pick up on Amazon. Uh, go go find Sarah's book, Rounding Home, by Sarah Swindell. Sarah with an H. Or uh, what, what's the name of the podcast? Fight or Flight, right? Yeah, that's a totally different thing. It's all about survivors of totally. crime. Yeah, if you like all the scary stuff, which I love, takes. I, I've always loved that. So it's also fun too. Yeah, for sure. But go give it a listen. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much, Sarah and Greg, for, for joining us. You guys have been awesome. I can't wait to, to share your story with, uh, with our listeners. Thanks. Good luck to your podcast Thank as you. well. Thank so, you. So, Greg, before we let you run, what was it like playing for the Indians when Major League came out? <laughs> Did you guys get worn out on that? Actually, most, most of it was filmed in Milwaukee. A lot of people don't know that, but it was, it was filmed in Milwaukee. They did a few things. You can see the aerial shots. That was we had a game against Detroit, and they knew it was going to be filmed. So they told the people, pack the the old stadium, and um, you know the the guy who produced it or, or wrote it. His dream was to have the Indians win the World Series, and didn't know that it would actually happen that they would make it to the World Series again. But um, it, it was neat, and still to this day, I've, I've met a, a buddy in Arizona who was in the movie when they were at spring training in Tucson. He was at the U of A at the time. So it's, it, it, it's fun. We still use the Joe Boo reference a lot. So um, uh, it, 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 was, it was neat just because it was Cleveland and it was uh, on the big screen. Nice catch. Don't ever do it again. <laughs> That's awesome. Greg, Sarah, it was awesome to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Where do we start? to unpack all of that. What an inspiring conversation with Greg and Sarah Swindell. Greg spent 17 years in the major leagues as a starter, then a relief pitcher, a lefty, retired as an unbelievably awesome child named Dawson with with special needs, got divorced from his wife, Sarah, were divorced for nine years, then got remarried. And I think, Matt, it really shows their story, what is possible in the human heart with forgiveness, with reconciliation, with... Just, just being accepting that not everyone's perfect and not everyone's how you exactly want them to be at a specific point in time. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I've been married to my wife for 20 years. You've been married to your wife for 20 years. And, you know, I can't imagine ever not being married to my wife. And I really can't imagine what that's like to take a nine year hiatus and then come back together. 
But at the end of the day, and he married to someone else. Right. Right. And, but at the end of the day, you know, coming back together a, a, a lot because of this trauma that happens early in your life that then, you know, creates the rift, but then realizing that that trauma can bring you together, I think is such an interesting, amazing story. And, um, and the fact that, look, you know, th this happens, right? They're not the first people who have been married, got divorced and remarried. Um, but the fact that they're willing to be so vulnerable, that they're willing to talk about it, that they're willing to talk about what, you know, Dawson is in their lives and, you know, what a special guy he is. And, you know, I, I just think that, you know, it just, it just, what we wanted this podcast to be right was telling these great stories about athletes and, you know, what, what we don't know about them, you know, off of the field. And, and I think, I think Greg and Sarah just, they, they personify this unique story that, you know, I'm, I'm so happy, you know, they were willing to share with us. Well, I think victory away from the venue can define success really differently. And I can't think of anything that defines accomplishment more nobly than saving your family. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And they, they've had this like circuitous route of doing that. And I think that that just makes it that much more special. Right. And I just, I, there, and, 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 you know, I, I have gotten to meet them personally in real life. They came off today uh, on the podcast as being incredibly genuine. And I'm here to tell you that in real life, it's the exact same way. They, um, I, I, I told Zach off, off recording that, you know, they've, and I know I said it on, but like, they've always said, yes, they, they don't want anything re in return. There is no quid pro quo. Um, they're just genuine, nice human beings. And, um, you know, I, I, there are people who just draw you in and who I, who I just, I, I just enjoy spending any kind of time with them that I can. That's it. Well, how about two, the life of a major league girlfriend or fiance, significant other, wife? These kids, are gone the kids meaning the, the grown-up ball players are gone eight months a year I mean it starts the first or second week in February and if you're really really good and are the last team standing or one of the last two teams it's the first week in November that's yep. nine months it's a long time a lot of travel a lot of schooling a lot of activities a lot of things to juggle even when they're home because baseball is not a nine-to-five job it is about three o'clock till midnight yeah. And I mean, imagine what that life must be like. <laughs> and I don't know that, you know, I don't think anyone can even explain it. I think you just have to live it. And then, you know, as Sarah alluded to, and then all of a sudden he's home all the time, <laughs> you know, and for, and for three months straight, you know, and like, just go away. Right. Like we, we've got our rhythm and, and all of those things. And then, and then in retirement, right. You're, you're still a young man um, or a young woman, if you're a female athlete, you know, when you retire and, and all of a sudden you're around all the time when you've never been around, you know, it, the, the adjustments that athletes have to make within their family life, I mean, is really unfounded, right? I mean, it's, it's a very unique thing and a very special thing um, that rarely happens, you know, maybe, maybe military families are like that, right? Where you're gone for a really long time and then all of a sudden you're back and you're there all the time. But, you know, very, very few professions um, lend themselves to that kind of experience. Greg and Sarah Swindell. We're so glad you guys checked it out. Listen to Victory Away from the Venue podcast. This has been our most recent episode. Thanks for checking it out. We'll see you next time.